I am pleased to welcome this afternoon's guest speaker. In 2009, Ray Ivany became the 15th president and vice chancellor of Acadia University. He's not your typical choice as president of one of Canada's oldest and most respected liberal arts universities. Why? He didn't major in Greek or philosophy, and he didn't have a PhD. But it was not a typical time for universities either, facing the ever greater challenges of financing and enrollment, balancing the needs of faculty and students, and keeping a university running smoothly in a down economy, especially in Easter Canada, um, it's about as easy as herding cats. Well, this guy has done it. Four years on, it appears that Acadia made a brilliant choice. Mr. Ivany's philosophies, which include focusing on shared values instead of differences, creating a space for others to do their work, and building relationships with the community at large, have all served Acadia well. He has managed to bring non-traditional leadership skills to bear while preserving the academic liberal arts of the, at the core of the university. Now, besides his academic administrative duties, uh, this Nova Scotia native has most recently been appointed chair of the Nova Scotia Commission on Building Our New, uh, our new Economy. He is also Vice Chair of Nova Scotia Business, Inc., a board member of the Association of Universities and Colleges of Canada, and a board member of Nova Scotia Power, Inc. Helping to build the province's economy is a clear demonstration of Mr. Ivany's long history of executive leadership and community involvement. Previously, he has served as Chair of the Workers' Compensation Board of Nova Scotia, Executive Vice President of the University College at, of Cape Breton, and he was president and chief executive officer of the Nova Scotia Community College for seven years, ending in 2005. Mr. Ivany has also advised various levels of government through appointments to the National Roundtable of the Environment and the Economy, Ontario Investment in Students Task Force, and the Nova Scotia Premier's Fiscal Management Task Force. He's a busy man. So it's certainly no surprise that his achievements and contributions have earned Ray Ivany several awards of distinction. In 2004, he was featured in Maclean's Magazine's honor roll of top 10 Canadians who made a difference. And the same year, he was also honored as the Halifax Chamber of Commerce Business Person of the Year. In 2006, he was granted an honorary Doctor of Letters from St. Thomas University. And in 2011, he was inducted into the Atlantic Business Magazine's Top 50 CEO Hall of Fame. I am pleased to turn the podium over to Mr. Ivany now, who will present his case for the undergraduate experience. Isabel, thank you for the uh, kind introduction, and uh, I want to welcome everyone. It's uh, wonderful to have this opportunity to be at the Canadian Club today. Um, and as the title implies, I want to talk to you about undergraduate education in Canada. It may seem uh, like a, uh, uh, an expected topic, given uh, my role at Acadia, um, but I'm going to come at it from a slightly different perspective. There are many in the, in the room that know me 
And you would probably uh, expect, because of my own philosophy, that uh, uh, the argument would be based on John Dewey's notion of education for good citizenry, the kind of development of the individual to participate fully in society, which I believe in deeply, but I'll not use that as the premise of my case today. Or you may expect something that I say to our graduates at every convocation and, and believe it to the tips of my toes, that a first-rate undergraduate degree uh, at, at its core is about a journey of imaginative introspection towards one's most authentic self. And any of us that have gone through those programs know that that deep, deep uh, experience of trying to understand the world around you, particularly in the kind of complexity we have today, and where you fit in it may in fact be the greatest gift that education can provide. But I'll not use that. <laughs> what I'll talk to you about is Canada. And I'll talk to you about why I think we underestimate by a significant margin the importance of high quality undergraduate education. So. Our country, I'm, I tend to be optimistic by nature. Uh, I think there are many things that commend Canada. If we look at the way that we've managed to weather the storm during uh, an economic upheaval of unprecedented proportion, whether it be the regulatory environment or financial institutions um, or a, a structure of our economy, certainly some help from energy exports and commodities. Uh, but we certainly carried that period, I think, in reasonably good form. So at one level, lots of good news. There's a piece of it though, and you've noticed the cartographic uh, metaphor in the, uh, in the title. The reason for that is that I believe as a country, we do stand on the precipice of a very ill-defined future. And the area that causes me some concern is something that many in the room would be well-versed in, certainly Minister Raitt and her colleagues, uh, and MPP McLeod as well, uh, and that is Canada's scores on measures of innovation. Uh, and you can use a variety of measures if you like. I'll use the World Economic Forum as a benchmark. Uh, last year, Canada, in terms of global competitiveness, uh, fell to 14th place. And on the subheading of innovation, business sophistication, we fell from 15th to 21st. Now, not necessarily sounding alarm bells in that regard. We know some of the reasons for that. Lower per capita spending on R&D, less venture capital per GDP, stubbornly low labor productivity rates over the last decade, structural pieces of our economy. The reason that I cite it as a concern is that we're really talking more broadly, not about economic statistics, we're talking about prosperity in the kind of country we want to have and what kind of economy, what kind of structure do we need in order to encounter the success I think all of us would want. Now, it you know, may be a bit of a stretch, but again, to, you know, to play with the metaphor, the current environment that we're in bears some modern-day resemblance, if you like, to the court of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella in the 15th century as they looked at those maps and you all recall some version of what they looked like, right? There were no ports of call defined. There were no roadways. The continents themselves were pretty fuzzy. And of course, those huge swaths of land that were defined, hic sunt dracone, there be dragons, right? Unknown territories that as the explorers of the day set off, they feared. 
And I think we are setting up, and so is every other country, with the kind of modern diversified economy that we have in Canada, we're set off on that journey. And it will be, in many ways, uncharted. No one has the answer. So the maps and mapmaker references, and I'll return to that several times in the next few minutes, is about what we know. Maps tend to be very useful. Maybe GPS for the uh, younger folks in the audience uh, are very useful for what you know. They're not terribly useful for what you don't know. And that's why you need map makers. And that's why you needed the explorers of the day. So we're talking a modern day equivalent of that. So how have university graduates fared in the period that we've, recent period that we've gone through? Well, the answer in short form is very well. From 1990 up until 2011, the number of jobs for university graduates in Canada doubled. Probably won't surprise anyone in the room. The recent data, and again for the uh, students who are in uh, independent schools thinking about their post-secondary choices, uh, the data today says that if you acquire a university degree, your income premium over your lifetime will be in excess of a million dollars. So it's a, you know, there's a powerful choice. Attachment to the labor market tends to be better. Even during periods of unemployment, they tend to be shorter. So if that wasn't impressive enough, let's look at the toughest period that Canada has gone through, certainly in my lifetime, from the economic collapse in 2008 up until present. It may surprise you, but jobs for university graduates went up 15% in that period. Got jobs for college graduates went up by 5%. And we shed over 600,000 jobs for those with a high school education. So the direct connection between knowing and doing has never been more apparent. And remember during that period, youth unemployment touched 20% in this country. And, and it did so in many other countries. But for those with a post-secondary education, it never tipped over the 6% level. So you've got a, a powerful case here. And at one level, you should be asking at this point, so why the worry about that unknown territory? Well, there's a couple of structural reasons for the worry. The first one is not the subject for today's conversation, but I want to cite it briefly because I hope a future speaker will address you on this very topic, and that's adult literacy. So for those that aren't familiar, there's an international survey of adult literacy and skills. It takes into account literacy and numeracy. It's a five-band scale. So in the mid-band at three is generally regarded as the level you need to get to in order to get even uh, the lower end, if you like, of the wage scale in jobs in today's economy. We have nine million Canadians at levels one and two literally on the outside looking in. Now that historically, that has been the story in Canada. The statisticians say it's a bimodal distribution. We've always had a significant adult literacy challenge uh, and we've also had a high concentration of those who hold post-secondary credentials. And that will be the topic for me to address today. So the first piece is important. We need to do more. It's as simple as that. The second piece I honestly think, and I'll be really bold in the statement, I think we've been lulled into a false sense of security as a country. Many of you will have seen media reports, some recently, uh, where we continue to use the statistic of the number of Canadians uh, that hold a post-secondary credential compared to our OECD counterparts. And in fact, 
Canada ranks number one. If you look underneath that statistic, there's a bit of a different story. Canada is an anomaly. First of all, that's an aggregate statistic. So it includes everything from short-term certificate programs to diploma programs to baccalaureate, master's, PhD, and they're all grouped together. But Canada has a different post-secondary structure than many of our OECD counterparts. We produce three times the norm of non-university PSE credentials than a typical OECD country. So I'm going to ask each of you to think for a moment uh, uh, your assessment of the scale that I'm going to ask you to consider, because it's the one that often is not cited in the media. And that is the percentage and the ranking in Canada in terms of our OECD counterparts for those that have completed university. So the percentage of our population have completed university. Remember, we're number one if you aggregate all PSE credentials. So everyone's got a number in their head. We rank 15th. We rank 15th. And 30 years ago, we were at the very top. Now, why is that of a concern? I'll give you a direct connection. Remember that World Economic Forum innovation scale? Many of the countries, Australia, the United States, Switzerland, Korea, that are ahead of us in terms of those innovation scales are also ahead of us in terms of university attainment. And their rate of increase has been tremendously faster than ours. So why is that significant? Well, it's significant because we need, remember, maps and map makers. So where do the map makers come from? The map make makers come from first-rate, high-quality academic programs at universities. That's why those other countries are making rapid expansion in the university sector. They're doing it for reasons of social cohesion. They're doing it for reasons of building a society. But make no doubt whatsoever about this. They're doing it because they see the direct link to the prosperity of their country. Now, how do you produce those people? Well, if you look at what we need in a society where we have complexity and ambiguity and diversity as, as we've come together globally, the complexity alone of the world as it sits today, I think, requires a, a different educational approach. And different, I say advisedly, than, again, what you more typically will read in the news coverage, which will all about being short-term matches of skills to particular jobs. Absolutely important, needs to be done, but it's table stakes. Those jobs get created by people who are entrepreneurs, people who discover uh, new inventions, come up with research that gets out of their lab. I mean, it's wonderful that you'll have Heather Monroe Bloom and David Naylor with you in a couple of weeks, and they'll talk to you directly about how research contributes. What I want to talk to you today about is how high-quality undergraduate education contributes to that same issue. Because if you think about it, the kinds of critical thinking skills, the kinds of experiences where you need to come to grips with how to understand a world more based on fact than opinion and to be able to discern the difference between the two, to be able to critically evaluate options and to come up with creative solutions, not just to solve problems, but to find problems that need to be solved. Those are the map makers. Those are the individuals that come up with new ways of looking at old problems and have skill sets that allow them to solve problems that we haven't even thought of yet. 
Now, in our experience, I mean, if you look at that in broad form, and there are many folks in the audience today, Acadia graduates or otherwise, that would know in many ways what you're describing are almost traditional elements of a liberal education. And there's no surprise in that. For generations, our map makers have been people who have pursued, at least in their undergraduate career, what would be described as a liberal education, because it is an incredibly powerful model. And it doesn't matter what subject you study. A liberal education is about a sense of place and an understanding of how you fit in the world around you. And we don't need to look further than our friends to the south to see that. The Ivy League schools, if you look at it, and as the Ivy League schools have grown, I think something has been lost. Let's take Yale, which you know probably total enrollment somewhere in the 13 to 15,000 range. The undergraduate programs are still delivered within a construct called Yale College. Enrollment about 5,400. Dartmouth College, a wonderful Ivy League school, still around 4,000. Bowdoin, a junior Ivy school in Maine, since its founding in 1802, is still under 2,000 students. So size does matter. There's something you can do with these small spaces that you can't do with larger institutions. It doesn't mean that large is bad, small is good. Not at all. But the kind of engagement that you can have as a student in a small, intense setting where your work with faculty is not on a screen or in a thousand-seat lecture hall, but is in an intensely human and personal interaction. Look, since the time of Socrates and Plato, education at its core has been an intensely human endeavor. There's something powerful that passes between human beings when learning and deep learning is involved. But you have to have the human beings in contact in order to do it. As one of my colleagues says, you know, we've often say to our students, you know, one of the great things about Acadia is in a, you know, in a class of 20 students, there's no place for you to hide. And he's an English prop and corrected me and said, you know what, there's no place for the prof to hide either. <laughs> right? And that says something about what that kind of deep interaction is about. In the US, we value, just think, many of you will have had direct or indirect experience. Think of how much they value the undergraduate space that is intended to produce those map makers that they need. Why is that important to us? We need to compete successfully against them. And we need our proportion of map makers. We need our proportion of individuals who, when challenged, and I'll say to the students who are considering, I've talked to them already before we began today, in terms of their choice, is that, yes, Acadia is a high academic standard, but we don't expect you to get there alone. And we ask you to take a look at the type of institution that's going to allow you to do your very best. And for every student, that may in fact be a different space. But the Americans value that model for a particular reason. And, and I believe they've got it right. And in Canada, it's something that we don't think about in the same context. Let me give you a real example that I lived through. So I began, as Isabel noted, at Acadia in 2009. One of the first things I began doing was talking to students and talking to their parents about Acadia. And I remember the first set of parents, they were actually from the uh, Toronto area, uh, who I encountered and just talking about the, the experience. And they said, look, I need to tell something. I need to tell you something directly. Until we drove into Wolfville and came on campus, 
we didn't believe there were universities like this left in Canada. And I'm a maritimer. I grew up with these institutions. And I'll be honest, you know, I didn't give that the credence that I should have. But now that I've heard it well over 100 times, it's sunk in. You know, they were making a powerful statement in many ways. That kind of small town, residential, intense community where you're going to see your profs and your fellow students, not just in the classroom, but in residence hall, in meal hall, uh, downtown, our population of Wolfville doubles when Acadia is in session. So you're just as likely to run into someone there. And that's where that kind of, of deep thinking, as much as often uh, those of us within the academy are a little reticent to accept, uh, if you reflect on your own undergraduate experience, I suspect many of you learned as much outside the classroom as you did within. But in our environment, you're still pursuing that same level of excellence. And excellence is the word that I would use. Because again, if I can juxtapose the US experience, so that was in April 2009 with people from our own country saying, we didn't think we had universities like this left in Canada. Well, that September, I met the parents of our American students for the first time. And they had a, they had a similar story, but theirs was different. Theirs was, as soon as we drove into Wolfville and came on campus, it felt completely familiar because that model is so deeply understood in their context. Now, the reason that this is significant is that these kinds of spaces, the kind of experience that characterizes a liberal education and a high quality liberal education, you may be thinking, well, why, why is that so important? Remember where I started this. The kind of Canada we want to have and the contribution that all of us, whether economically, socially, culturally, or otherwise, we're going to make to life in this country. This is another number that doesn't make, to make the media nearly enough and may surprise you. Of all the degree holders in Canada, 70% their highest degree is a baccalaureate degree. So why is it important? Because the vast majority of university graduates hold a baccalaureate degree. And they are the ones that we need to be map makers. That's why the focus on excellence in undergraduate education in many other countries. And that's why Canada needs to be as focused on it. You can't hope and wish your way towards that kind of deep, deep educational engagement that you get in the space of an institution like Acadia. You have to do it with deep, deep volition. If I, if I look at how it happened at Acadia, it occurred right from our founding. For those of you that don't know the history, the short form is Acadia was founded out of an act of religious discrimination. And great to have Dr. Harry Gardner here today as president of the Acadia Divinity College. Uh, someone was passed over for a professorship solely out of religious discrimination of the day. It was 1835-36 at the time. But when they finally got together and created an institution, they didn't make the reflexive reaction of we were frozen out so we'll freeze out others. The contrary, a most magnanimous act. They said the first tenet, and this exists to today, is that there shall be no discrimination on the basis of religious belief, race, creed. It was an open opportunity to pursue excellence in higher education. So it's no surprise that Acadia was one of the, among the first universities in the British Commonwealth to admit women among the first to admit African Canadians, and to continue to do work that exists beyond its walls in terms of trying to change the society we live in for the better. It was bred in the bone. 
But E. Bartlett Giamatti, the former president of Yale, and some will remember Commissioner of Baseball as well, uh, probably more known for that. But president of Yale, um, uh, he had an interesting way of describing this. He said that a liberal education lies at the heart of a civil society. And that at the heart of a liberal education is great teaching. And that was woven into the Acadia fabric from the beginning as well. You can't have great undergraduate education without great teaching. You simply can't. It's back again to the need for that kind of human interaction, that kind of depth. To attract faculty, it's a challenge. We have to attract some of the best scholars in the world who don't want to work primarily with graduate students on their research, that want to spend time working with undergraduates to develop them in that way. And let me give you a couple of examples. Look, because this is not, and I don't want this to be seen as, you know, this is a nicety. Because there's a handful of institutions in Canada that are pursuing this model because we believe in it so deeply. Our colleagues at Mount Allison, St. Francis Xavier, bishops, all on similar models because of a belief of how fundamentally transformative it is. And look, I, you know, I'm, I'm one who's constantly saying to colleagues, it's not just small classes. It's what you do with those small classes that matter. So let me give you a couple of quick examples of what we do that creates the space for pursuit of that excellence. And every university across the country would have their innovators. And, and, that, and this is not intended to displace or diminish their accomplishments. It is to say the particular kind of pursuit of excellence that occurs in our space. So the first one I'll use as an example is intro political science at Acadia. And this we owe this to two young faculty members, uh, Rachel Brickner and Jeffrey Whitehall, who came to Acadia, taught the course for the first year in the standard way. Good textbook, well thought out lectures, delivered the course. They got together afterwards and they said, you know what, I mean, and, and I shouldn't probably mention this at the beginning, but for those that don't know, uh, Acadia in, in little old Wolfville, Nova Scotia, uh, we draw students from every province and territory in Canada and 50 different countries. So it's a microcosm of the world that comes there. So they got together after the, after the first year of teaching the class, and they said, you know what, as long as we deliver this course on a textbook-based model, um, the students, they're bright, they're going to ace it without breaking a sweat. So they said, is there another way to do intro political science? And they've come up with that, now presented it at international conferences. Uh, I call it 11 books in 11 weeks. No textbook. So imagine, come out of high school, and uh, I'm looking at some students that are looking at me in that, in that way. Uh, a book a week, and now you've got to go to the class. Think of the intellectual function here. You've now got to go to the class, and instead of being spoon-fed the material from the textbook, you've got to extrapolate from what you've read to the same principles, because those principles have to be learned so that you can go on to upper-year courses. And, and that kind of innovation creates a space that is fundamentally different. The outcomes are different in terms of those students. And when you add to that, the kind of experience that they have outside the classroom. And again, while we may think of that oftentimes as, well, yeah, that's kind of a nice to have. Uh, yesterday, and I had nothing to do with the timing of the release of this report, the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario, HECO, released a report that now quantifies that deep engagement that students have outside their classroom, whether it be in service learning or co-op education or working as a residence assistant, 
actually produces higher academic performance. So, so we now have quantitative evidence of what we've always known in terms of why these models are so powerful. Let me pick another one, and this one is, is, is particularly fun, and another little uh, test since I've asked you to think about numbers that you've had in your head. Um, I met a faculty member just as I joined Acadia, John Soklovsky in uh, English. And John, a uh, uh, great guy, sort of came up and said, Ray, Acadia is fabulous, you know, you're really going to enjoy it, and he's engaging. And he said, you know, I just got here a couple of years ago myself. He said, I came to Acadia because the only way the only place that I could do the kind of innovation I wanted to do in my teaching. So that's kind of interesting, and at the time I didn't know uh, his discipline, so I said, really, I said, What's, what was the innovation? What were you trying to pursue? And, and, what, and what is it that you study? And he said, oh, it's romance languages, which is not what I expected, frankly. Uh, and, but here's the story. He was at McGill finishing off his uh, PhD doing... Uh, a lot of teaching, and he discovered that young people that live in a world like this don't connect to Blake or others in the same way that my generation would have. And the idea that he had, and he came to Acadia because of our reputation being the first laptop university uh, in North America, we're in the Smithsonian for that, uh, that accomplishment, uh, because he knew he could come and work with the software engineers to design a gaming space. So if you're in John's uh, romantic literature class, picture 25 students, all with laptops in front of them, uh, that move into the gaming space, assume the characters that they're studying in the gaming space, and role play the piece of literature in that gaming space. So that kind of, that, for a faculty member to spend the amount of time that it takes to create that kind of experience is again, that's what we do well. And we do it because it takes students to a different place. Another quick example of that, and this one over on the science side. Uh, Richard Karsten, a, a mathematician, physical oceanographer, came to Acadia doing his research in the Antarctic. But literally from Huggins Science Hall, you can see the Minas Basin. And he had an idea, maybe I can do the mathematical modeling that I do and apply it to the question of tides in the Bay of Fundy and tidal power. Now, at our school, the first thing that Richard thinks about is, how do I involve an undergraduate student in that research? The undergraduate student was Megan Lickley from Sudbury, Ontario. And uh, they began the work in part of her honors thesis, uh, completed it, published it. The upgrade in the potential energy available in the minus channel increased by a factor of eight because of the modeling technique that they apply. Megan got a published paper out of it as an undergraduate. She's now at MIT uh, doing a master's degree in mathematics, modeling sea level rise and its impact on power plants and refineries on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Arthur, you'd be, uh, you'd be interested in, uh, in her work. But think about that. To get there as an undergraduate, to get there as an undergraduate, gives it opens the world to them. Look, I, I've described this in really simple form to many prospective students. And that is, there's a constant here. You're going to spend four years no matter where you go. The variable is, how much are you going to develop in those four years. And, you know, we're, we're very comfortable in understanding if you want to develop yourself, and think about this in excellence terms, if you want to develop yourself athletically or artistically, we immediately are comfortable in saying, 
those individuals who want to pursue excellence in those realms will put in inordinate hours, they will challenge themselves, they will receive special coaching, they will push themselves further than those that aren't trying to get to that level of excellence. Why would we be less surprised that you need to do the same thing academically? And that's what the question becomes. Remember, 70% of our degree holders in this country hold the baccalaureate degree. They are the ones that are creating those jobs. They are the ones that are creating great communities. They are the ones that are creating pieces of art. But they are getting there because they were pushed further. The outcomes are fundamentally different when you get students in that kind of space. And we got many Acadia graduates in the room that serve as examples that are leaders in virtually every walk of life. We count a Nobel laureate as a graduate of Acadia, Charles Huggins. You simply produce different human beings. I have often said again at, at convocation that it's almost like you rewire yourself as a human being if you truly enter that realm where you test yourself in the way that uh, we believe a first-rate liberal education can provide. Let me finish by returning to the cartographic metaphor. And again, think about Canada. And think about the kind of Canada that we want, the kind of success that we want, and again, measured in a variety of different ways. We need young men and women, and we need as universities to challenge them, not when they get to graduate school or professional school, because we know the vast majority of them will complete that undergraduate degree and they'll go out and make their impact in life. We need to challenge them to be the absolute best they can be as undergraduates. We need them, if we think about that map and King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella and looking at what that looks like, we need the people that will set out on that journey, not knowing exactly where that port of call can be found. The people that can discern when there's an opportunity and how to seize it. The individuals that can critically look and see something that the rest of us, frankly, can't. And to get there, one has to go deep inside yourself. You have to find a way, again, if I can extend that, that metaphor of the map, you have to be unafraid of those dragons. You have to be willing to go into that space that was previously uncharted. And students get there but they get there by being in an environment that allows them, that really makes it safe for them to go where those dragons live. And they go there in a way that gives them the opportunity to find terra incognita, to, to plant their flag there and proudly proclaim that new discovery. And whether that be an actual invention or whether that be a piece of intellectual thought or a piece of artistic thought that they simply could not have gotten there otherwise. And I think the leaders of tomorrow, and in fact our country as a whole, deserve absolutely nothing less than that. Thank you very much. Ivany, let me take this opportunity on behalf of the guests gathered here today to thank you for a passionate discourse on the importance of investing in the undergraduate experience. As you pointed out, we live in a knowledge economy. 
the success of which rests on the experience that post-secondary graduates will take with them into the workforce. As an education advocate, your passion comes through loud and clear. Acadia University is not the only beneficiary of your vision and conviction. I'm certain that university students all over Canada appreciate your support in the learning journey. You've done a stellar job of pointing us in the right direction on engaging learners in a meaningful way. We wish you continued success in your multiple roles as President and Vice Chancellor of Acadia, Commission Chair and Education Champion. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, thanks, Gordon. And of course, Gordon is next year's president uh, of the Canadian Club, so we'll be hearing more of him. Uh, once again, I want to say what a wonderful speech that was, Ray. Uh, it was insightful and uh, typical of you, you know, looking on the cutting edge of where we're going in this world. So thank you so much. This concludes our television programming, which we will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. And we are also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the Canadian Club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And uh, students, look at Acadia. It sounds exciting. And uh, this meeting is now adjourned. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>